a colonel in the Continental Army, Isaac Hayne was hanged on August 4, 1781, in Charleston, South Carolina, by British troops for espionage and treason. His public execution inspired fellow Americans to rally and join General Nathaniel Greene's army, which helped turn the tide for the Patriots. I went to his final resting place on his plantation in Jacksonboro. What lies beneath? Patriots and Pon Pon Church. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Friends and Taphophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. I've got some great stories for you today, and I have a great co-host as well, my husband, Brad. Hey, Brad. Hey, how's it going? Well, it's going pretty good, except for that we had a really long travel day today, so we're kind of tired. Yeah. We're actually in a hotel. That's the joys of a weekly podcast, as your wife says, hey, Brad, I know it's late, and uh, you probably want to go to sleep, but we're going to record a podcast right now. (laughs) Yippee-yay. We're going to talk a little bit about when we were in the South, and we went to Isaac Haynes Plantation and Pon Pon Church. You remember that, right? I do. (laughs) Remember it well. I knew you would. It was just amazing to think of all the history that happened as we toured Charleston and the area surrounding it. And one of the places that you really wanted to see was the Haynes Family Cemetery. And I never really heard the story before going there. And we read quite a bit about it. And this guy was quite the rebel and patriot. That's right. Isaac Hain was a rice planter from Colton County. And at the beginning of the war, Isaac Hayne joined the rebellion and was commissioned a captain of artillery. And at the same time, he was a state senator for South Carolina. Hmm. In 1780, on the invasion of the state by the British, he served in a cavalry regiment during the final siege of Charleston. Hayne was among thousands of soldiers trapped in Charleston during the second siege by the British in 1780. The Continental Army surrendered Charleston to the British, and the captured soldiers were allowed to return home, but as prisoners under parole. After a couple of months on parole, Isaac Hayne had gone home and spent some quality time with his family. The family became ill, and he went to Charleston to try to find some medicine. At this time, he was told he must declare himself a British subject by signing an oath of allegiance. If he wouldn't do this, he'd be punished with close confinement. Basically, he would be imprisoned and made to stay in Charleston. In the oath, he stated that, quote, when called upon, the subject must fight for the British Army indubitably. (laughs) Indubitably. Unquote. That wouldn't feel good, would it? No. Well, Hayne really struggled with this decision of becoming a British subject again. He was a loyal patriot, but he knew if he signed this oath that it could make it so that he could return to his family, but he did not want to ever take up arms in support of the British. 
To appease Isaac Hayne, a British commandant told him that he would not be called upon to serve, and this reassured him. He would never betray his country, but he also really needed to return home to be with his family. Hayne gathered up the courage to sign the oath, trusting that he would never have to take up arms against America. In signing the British Oath of Allegiance, Hayne did not realize that he was also signing his death warrant. Now, you may be thinking, if he couldn't sign this in good conscience, then he shouldn't have, and just taken the imprisonment, and in fact, he would have happily done just that, if it wasn't for two things. The first reason was his family. During Haynes' time in fighting for the rebel cause, his family was taken ill with smallpox. One of his children had already succumbed to the disease, and now his wife and other children were deathly ill with the disease. Hayne would not allow his wife and children to perish if he could help nurse them back to health. That's a tough spot. Yeah. This made him going home his top priority, and he would have done anything to get there except desert the American cause and bear harms against his country. And the second reason, James Patterson, the British Commandant of Charleston, promised Hayne that if by some reason he was called to serve in the British Army, he could decline. And so this verbal contract between Patterson and Hayne helped influence his decision to sign the oath and return home to a sick family. Unfortunately, Isaac's wife and two of his children died despite his efforts to save them. Well, by next summer, Hayne, who was an accomplished soldier and with outstanding leadership, was put in a terrible position by the British as the fortunes were turning in favor of the revolutionary cause in South Carolina. General Green had left the British nothing but Charleston, and Hayne was summoned to join the Royal Army immediately. This was the same commandant that had promised him that this wouldn't happen. He felt cheated by the British by the fact that they hadn't kept their word, and Isaac mm -hmm. Hayne felt that it was a violation of his verbal agreement that had been made, and so he felt released from all obligations to the British. Yeah. And as we all know, verbal agreements never pan out. Here he makes an important decision. He decided to reject the British call to arms, and what do you think he did instead? Well, I know that he returned to the Continental Army. <laughs> That's exactly what he did. He went to the American camp and was commissioned as a colonel of a militia company. He served in Colonel William Hardin's regiment, and Hayne was tasked with leading a mission to execute a raid and to retrieve General Andrew Williamson, who was in the custody of the British. Now, if you don't know the name Andrew Williamson, which I didn't either, he had been a part of the Continental Army, but had joined the British soon after the failed siege of Charleston in May 1780. And so the Patriots, they saw him as a traitor. And they didn't want him helping out the British. And so in retaliation for his disloyalty, Haynes' party captured General Williamson on July 7th, 1781. Colonel Nesbitt Balfour, the British commander in Charleston, was afraid that Williamson would be hanged as a traitor. Boy, do they know about traitors. Right. And so he sent a column of soldiers to intercept Haynes' raiding party. He had received intelligence that Haynes's regiment were camped in the woods of Horseshoe, South Carolina. The interception was successful, 
Balfour's army ambushed the camp, yet were unable to retrieve Williamson due to Haines' men being tipped off that the British were coming. In an attempt to flee, Haines jumped on his horse, but fell, and then was captured by the British. On the next day, July 8, 1781, the British took Hain to Charleston to be tried for treason. He was held in the basement of the Exchange Building at the foot of Broad Street that still stands today. And in fact, we went to tour the Exchange Building while we were there and went down to where the dungeon was and where he and some other men were held during this time. And they had like little mannequins. Yeah, they had little mannequins that were supposed to represent the men that were there. It was one of those times when you felt like you were walking in the footsteps of history. It really did. And one of the reasons why we love going to those historic places, right? That's right. While he was in custody, Haynes' citizenship status was once again debated. Was he a British subject, guilty of treason and espionage, or... Was he still a prisoner on parole who had violated his agreement? Hayne wrote to Lord Francis Rodden and Colonel Balfour to request that if he were tried as a British subject, that he receive a legal trial. However, if he were tried as an American, he should have the freedom of his previous parole. Hayne was initially told by the Charleston town major Charles Frazier that a council of general officers would put him on trial the next day. Yet, a couple of hours later, Hayne learned that there would be no council and a decision had already been made. Wow, so no trial at all. No, Hayne was never allowed a trial, and on July 29, 1881, he received a response from the town major, Frazier, informing him that he was guilty of treason and that his sentence would be execution, and there was no way to change it. Wow. Hallelujah for the Bill of Rights. I know, right? So justice was quick and brutal. Less than a week later, on August 4th, he was marched through the streets of Charleston to the gallows at White Point, encountering sobbing citizens along the way, who begged the British not to hang one with such honorable standing in the city. Isaac Hayne died at the age of 36 for espionage and treason against the British crown. The oath of allegiance he signed had ultimately led to his death, after which Hayne was buried on the family plantation property in Jacksonboro. And yet, Isaac Hayne didn't die for nothing. Word of his unjust deaths spread quickly through Charleston and inspired many men to go and join the American cause. Nathaniel Green reacted to Haynes' death by pledging to retaliate against something so cruel. In addition, gathering support from his officers, Green wrote about Haynes' execution to George Washington and requested approval to retaliate against the British. Washington responded that Congress was considering the retaliation I really know not what to say on the subject of retaliation. Congress has it under their consideration, and we must wait their determinations. Of this I am convinced that of all laws, it is the most difficult to execute where you have not the transgressor himself in your possession. 
Humanity will ever interfere and plead strongly against the sacrifice of an innocent person for the guilt of another. Green never directly retaliated for Haynes' death, but the execution remained a rallying cry for the recruits who joined Green's army in the high hills of the Santee in South Carolina. Green had been struggling to turn his militiamen into foot soldiers, but with the fervor that his men felt after the hanging of Isaac Hayne, Green's army had increased by 2,000 men, and Green was ready to attack the British in the Battle of Utah Springs in September 1781. For many, Isaac Hayne was the Southern Nathan Hale, a symbol of British cruelty and the spark that was needed to help take back the South. Hayne's hanging not only helped inspire South Carolina's patriots to drive the British out within the year, it also gave rise to a famous ghost story. Of course. <laughs> According to legend, Hayne, as he was marched through the streets, passed the house of his sister on the way to the gallows, and she called out to him to please come back to her. And supposedly, he did promise that he would return. Now there have been claims that the sound of his boots can be heard marching down Broad Street in the dead of night. Oh boy. So while we were at Isaac Haynes' historic burial site, their plantation was called Hain Hall, and so it's the Hain Hall Cemetery. Isaac Hayne was buried in the garden of his plantation. Ownership of the plantation changed hands over the years, but the Hayne family retained access to the cemetery. And the state of South Carolina recognized Hayne's sacrifice by erecting a monument at the site in 1929. In 1963, the state acquired the cemetery to be preserved by the South Carolina State Park Service as a historic site. The Isaac Hayne burial site is near Jacksonboro, approximately 36 miles west of Charleston and 15 miles southeast of Walterboro off of South Carolina Route 64. We have a few of the transcribed inscriptions from the tombstones and monuments of the burial site there. There was the grandfather of Colonel Isaac Hayne, and it says, John Hayne, Shropshire, England, settled in Culleton County, 1700, died 1718. That's old. He's been there a long time. And then there was his father. He must have been named after his father. His father was Isaac Hayne. And his says, father of Colonel Isaac Hayne, Isaac Hayne, son of John Hayne, July 27th, 1714 to December 23rd, 1751. And then there is the grave of his wife. Her name was Elizabeth Hudson, wife of Colonel Isaac Hayne, married July 18th, 1765. And she has also a footstone that has her initials E-H-H. Isaac Hayne's headstone says, Colonel Isaac Hayne, Patriot Soldier, Martyr, born September 23, 1745, married Elizabeth Hudson, July 18, 1765, 
was executed by the British contrary to all usages of war, August 4th, 1781. In life, a soldier of his country, in death, a martyr to her sacred cause, his memory an undying inspiration to his fellow countrymen, his monument, the freedom of his native land. So these four gravestones that we just talked about They're more recent, so they weren't placed there at the time of each of their deaths. So these are not the the originals, and that's why they're still there. (laughs) They were placed around 1928 to 1929, but there are remnants of the gravestone of Isaac Joseph Hain, who was the son of of Dr. Isaac Hain, grandson of the Colonel Isaac that we've been talking about, lots of Isaacs. So there's a place for his that is the grandson of the Isaac Hain we talked about today. And then there is also Dr. Isaac Hain that says son of Colonel Isaac Hain, heir to Hain Hall Plantation, sacred to the memory of Isaac Hain, MD, son of Isaac and Elizabeth Hain. Who departed this life on the 13th of December, 1802, aged 36 years, 5 months, and 11 days. Loved through life, lamented, now dead. In this little cemetery, there are his ancestors and also his descendants. So there's quite a few burials that are there, and there's quite a few stones, but the ones, of course, you can read the best, were the ones placed in the Early 1900s, but they're still like 100 years old. So that's pretty cool. So there at Hain Hall, that's really all there is, is this little family cemetery. That's all that's left. It's down a dirt road in a heavily wooded area and just past a kind of a pasture clearing meadow. Mm-hmm. You find this family cemetery, but no remnants of the, of the house. So you kind of picture while you're standing there what it would have looked like with fields and rice and all of the houses and everything that would have been out there. And now it's just kind of in the middle of nowhere, this little family cemetery. Yeah, certainly off the beaten path. So from there, we went to a really interesting site that was the ruins of a church. And of course, there is a churchyard with graves because, you know, why else would we go there, right? That's it. (laughs) Standing sentinel in isolated woods of Colleton County, Pon Pon Chapel of Ease was once the center of a bustling thoroughfare located on what was once a busy stagecoach road the ruins of this beautiful chapel are all that remain in the area again just the middle of nowhere and there's church ruins with a cemetery during the early days of american history parker's ferry road connected charleston and savannah and it's said that president george washington even used this road during his 1791 spring tour and rumor has it that he even stopped to worship at Pon Pon Chapel. 
Wow. In 1706, St. Bartholomew's Parish was established and was originally presided over by Nathaniel Osborne, an Anglican clergyman. Osborne traveled around St. Bartholomew's Parish in order to preach and minister to the religious needs of the families that lived in the area. Osborne arrived at St. Bartholomew's Parish in 1713 after families in the area requested a missionary. He continued to ride the circuit of St. Bartholomew's Parish, officiating in five locations until the Yamasee War of 1715, when the Yamasee Indians devastated the parish and he narrowly escaped to Charleston. The 1725 Act of General Assembly provided for a chapel of ease here to be used as a parish church until one could be built. Now, I had never heard of a chapel of ease, had you? No, it's an interesting title. Right, but this little church apparently was one, and I found out that chapels of ease were created so that worshipers in more remote areas would have a place to worship because getting to a more central parish church would have been difficult due to the long distances that they would have had to travel. Okay, so it was like a little branch off the main parish church out in the sticks. <laughs> exactly. That's what I understand. Parish churches in those days had functions outside of Sunday worship, such as maintaining population statistics, elections, and other political functions. Pon Pon is unique among chapels of ease in that they also performed many of the functions of a parish church. Originally, there had been plans for a centralized parish church for St. Bartholomew's Parish. However, due to the after-effects of the Yamasee War in 1715, the General Assembly decided against a central parish church. The General Assembly approved the construction of the Chapel of Ease in 1725, and it was the first Anglican church in the state. Shortly after the decision to build the church in the Jacksonboro area, a wooden structure was built and was used for a time. The church was built on a two-acre plot of land that had been donated by the planter Thomas Ford. There wasn't a permanent rector at Pon Pon Chapel until late 1732 when the Reverend Mr. Guy was appointed to the parish. That's kind of like Mr. Sir or yeah, Mr. Mr. Man. <laughs> Mr. Guy. Mr. Guy. And so I'm going to start calling you, hey, Mr. Guy. Brother Guy. <laughs> On his arrival, he documented that within eight miles of the church, there were 44 families and 79 plantations. Wow. That's a lot. The founder of Methodism, John Wesley, preached from the pulpit in the church twice on April 24, 1737. The fact that an important religious person in the colonial period preached at Pon Pon increased the historical value in the area. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal that, you know, John Wesley preached there. And John Wesley wasn't in America all that long, just a couple of yeah, years wasn't. or something, and mostly in Savannah. Yeah, we learned more about him in Savannah, didn't we? We did. So then a brick chapel was built in 1754 to replace the earlier wooden structure, but this chapel burned in 1801 due to a forest fire and became known by locals as Burnt Church. 
Makes sense. Title. And I think some of that was because it was such a long time in that burnt state before they rebuilt. Before they rebuilt and so it was like, you know, past the burnt church. Then the structure was rebuilt again in the early 1820s, and the chapel was used lovingly until 1832, when according to the National Register of Historic Places application, it says that it was either burned again or somehow fell into disuse and disrepair. Part of this was probably due to the fact that nearby Jacksonboro was replaced by Walterboro as the county seat. And so as people began to migrate away from the area, Pon Pon became less central and a less important location for the congregants. And in 1826, there were reports that pew rentals were non-existent. Oh. Did you know that you had to rent a pew? I didn't. I didn't I didn't know about this stuff. Wow. Pew rentals were practically non-existent. Not good. And there was no need to rebuild, but then the Hurricane Gracie came through the area in 1959 causing further destruction to the structure. In 1971, Colleton County Historical and Preservation Society worked with the Episcopal Diocese of South Carolina to restore the ruins of the Pon Pon Chapel after Hurricane Gracie in 1959. And in 1970, the chapel and four acres of land were deeded to the Colleton County Historical and Preservation Society. Pon Pon Chapel of Ease was added to the National Register of Historic Places in January of 1972. The Colleton County Historical and Preservation Society maintained the chapel and the grounds since acquiring Pon Pon in 1970, including obtaining a grant to repair the front facade of the chapel in 1975. So the facade of Pon Pon Chapel has a central rounded arched entrance flanked by rounded arched windows on either side. It was all constructed in a brickwork pattern of one stretcher alternating with two headers. The two round windows in the facade's upper level utilized the same brickwork pattern. The walls were constructed in what was called Flemish Bond. Hmm. There's not much left of Pon Pon Chapel of Ease except for that front facade and part of the original back wall and of course the churchyard and cemetery. And while it is still in ruins, what remains allows visitors to imagine what it must have been like in its glory days. And even when the church was in ruins, locals continued to use the churchyard for burials. There are two congressmen and several other local leaders buried there in the churchyard. These ruins stand as a reminder of the early establishment of an Anglican church in the area. Pon Pon Chapel ruins can be found on Highway 64, the Jacksonboro Road, just outside of Jacksonboro, at Burnt Church Crossroads. <laughs> Still are, call that. <laughs> those are good names. Look for the sign between Jacksonboro and Walterboro. And so, as we got there, we noticed that there were even more bricks that had kind of fallen off the facade. And I guess that's a newer, more recent thing that has happened. Yeah. And they're not sure really what caused it, just settling or wind or something yeah. like that. And the facade's been reinforced with like cinder block 
bricks behind the original brickwork as yeah. well. But it still is a super interesting, architecturally unique mm -hmm. chapel. Mm -hmm. Really cool. We saw another one that looked like we thought would have looked like it. It was called St. Stephen's. Not too far from there, but away. But yeah, so it was kind of interesting to see a whole church that was in built in that kind of same style. Kind of gave us an idea of what it looked like in its day. But the cemetery was really interesting and there was really quite a few monuments and headstones that were left. Yeah, several graves from the early 1800s and pretty cool headstones. Yeah. One of the notable people buried in the churchyard is Adonis Burke. He was a U.S. congressman. He was born in Galway, Ireland. He attended a theological college at St. Omer, France, then immigrated to the American colonies and settled in Charlestown, South Carolina. He was appointed a judge of the State Circuit Court in 1778, served in the Revolutionary Army from 1780 to 1782, and was a member of the South Carolina House of Representatives from 1779 through 1788. In 1789, he was elected as an anti-administration candidate to the first Congress, mm -hmm. serving there until 1791. He I wonder what that was, an anti-administration candidate? I think that he's our, our kind of guy, is what it sounds <laughs> against, like. Against the administration. I'll vote for him. <laughs> he declined to be a candidate for re-election again and served as a judge of the state circuit court and as a chancellor of the courts of equity until his death at age 58 in Charleston, South Carolina. Pretty cool. I mean, congressman. And again, and this Ponpon Church is in the middle of nowhere, it seems like. Exactly. Yeah, it just seems like why would there be anybody of any importance out there? But it was a different place back then. And he also fought in the Revolutionary War. There was another U.S. congressman buried here, and his name was O'Brien Smith. And he was elected to represent South Carolina's 4th District in the United States House of Representatives, serving from 1805 to 1807. He was a member of South Carolina State Legislature in 1796 and member of South Carolina State Senate in 1803. Another notable grave is that of Archibald Campbell. His inscription reads, Captain of Company B, 3rd South Carolina Cavalry, the Colleton Rangers, 1862 to 1865. He is noted for his gallantry and masterly disposition of the Battle of Honey Hill in Gramville, South Carolina. Outnumbered 10 to 1, he and his Piney Woods marksmen pierced the mm -hmm. right wing of the Union Cavalry and drove them from the field. After the war, he pursued a career as a civil engineer and planter, erected by the Colleton Rangers, Camp Number 1643, Sons of the Confederate Veterans, Walterboro, South Carolina, 1996. That was interesting, wasn't it? And it shows a later burial in, in the churchyard there, too. Right. There was a stone for an Archibald Lawrence Campbell, who was born October 21st, 1822. So this was probably a son or something, and died January 8th, 1896. And his wife was Mary Blake Sanders. Most of these are pretty simple 
headstones. There was also a Campbell that had a really interesting kind of Romanesque looking, but with the figure of a woman with the kind of the drapery in the background and she's leaning against an urn. That's an interesting one. But the one that I wanted to read, especially Brad and I kind of got a, a chuckle out of this one. This was also another Campbell. This is, it says, in memory of Daniel Porteus Campbell, youngest son of Archibald and Anne Campbell. He was killed at Yamasi in the Battle of Pocataligo on the 22nd day of October, A.D. 1862. In the 22nd year of his age, he fell in command of Company V, 11th Regiment of South Carolina Volunteers. With his face to the foe, his last words to his companions in arms were, behave like men. Amen. <laughs> I'm like, wow, those are some last words right there. We just don't do it like that anymore. Then on the side, it says, he fell on the field of victory, a soldier of his country. We trust he shall rise triumphant, a soldier of the cross. And this one is kind of, it's in a, a pyramid shape, but it's like a tall pyramid shape, three-sided, kind of a tall... Obelisk. Like an obelisk, right. We thought that was really an interesting one. This one kind of made me question, it says... Anne Elliot Lewis, betrothed wife of Joseph M. Williams. So it sounds like they were engaged to be married, but then she died before? Died April 17th, 1882. And then, our hearts at rest in the quiet earth's breast, and our souls at home with their God. Anyway, really pretty little cemetery. Some of the stones were quite broken. Um, some of them, you know, laying on the ground. Um, we did see one that had a soul effigy that had a cute little angel face with wings. But it was just um, real cool place. a really cool place. Just kind of a relaxing wander through a little wood. You know, it was very quiet. No one was there. Right. We were the only ones there. Yeah, a peaceful place where you could explore with, to your heart's content with out having to share it with anybody. It was, a, it was a neat experience. Yeah, and both the places of Isaac Hain and we kind of felt like that that was really neat to go and, and see that. And it was pretty famous and what he did for the revolution and what he went through. We're Westerners and everything that surrounds us is new. And there's nothing old. And to go back and see places from the founding of the country and the history in a graveyard was really neat. That's really true. Well, I'm hopeful that they'll be able to do more stabilizing and restoration there at Pon Pon. I think it would be nice to at yeah. least keep what is there. Well, thanks, Brad. I really appreciate it. I know you're really tired. <laughs> I appreciate you helping me out with the podcast tonight. You're welcome. It was a great trip. It was. So what are your thoughts, friends, on ruins of an old church and the graves that are there? Should the church be restored or just be conserved as what it is? Or should just the graveyard be conserved? 
It was interesting in Isaac Haynes' family burials that there was no big grand plantation or mansion at all. All that was left were the stones, bones, and shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. Thank you.